Hello, 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 everyone. We have a great show for you this week. We're going to talk about some research from a couple of different research groups that shows that wind turbines may either heat or cool the surface of the Earth, depending on which study we're looking at. And then we're going to talk about $50 million that's been set aside by the U.S. government to support floating offshore wind. And then we have a standoff in western Nebraska between nuclear missiles and wind turbines. And Rope Partners is now installing custom-formed turbine blade shields from Edge Solutions, a really interesting partnership. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend and blade expert, Rosemary Barnes, and my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. If you're a frequent listener to the podcast, please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Uptime Tech News, which can be found by Googling Uptime Tech News. All right, Rosemary, do wind turbines heat the earth? My response is based on simple engineering and wind turbines take energy from the wind, which reduces the speed of the wind and the cooling effect from wind blowing across the prairie should reduce, uh, should be reduced. So necessarily temperatures will increase. So less wind means slightly warmer temperatures. That's my engineering take on it. However, uh, wind farms may warm the earth or they may cool the earth. It de- depends on the specifics. So there's some really interesting research has just popped out from Harvard University. Harvard researchers Lee Miller and David Keith estimated the effects of wind turbines on local temperatures in the United States. To do this, they created a computer model which put roughly 460 gigawatts of wind turbines in the U.S. And the U.S. currently generates about 120 gigawatts. They basically multiply the wind turbines times four and derive the temperature Uh, two meters from the ground. So that's like human temperature, things we would feel. Uh, Surprisingly, uh, Miller's and Keith's simulated predictions uh, calculated air temperatures will increase by 0.24 degrees Celsius across the U.S. and a half a degree Celsius in the Midwest where most of the wind turbines are found. That's an interesting result because I've seen varying numbers and you always think that the temperature would rise a little bit, but a half a degree Celsius is something to, you, you could feel that, I think. Is, is, is that your opinion too? A half a degree, Rosemary, is something you could actually feel? Yeah, I think so. Um, It's interesting, this one, because it's a question that I get asked a lot and um, generally by people who are looking for, you know, there's a big crowd of people who always want to find a reason why renewable energy is actually worse for the the climate than than fossil fuels. And so it's, you know, it's a pretty, (laughs) pretty long bow to draw. Um, (laughs) The the research is is interesting. It's interesting to get contradictory results, and it's also interesting the way that the research is then reported in the media or on you know targeted Facebook ads and stuff like that, because they make it sound like it's contributing to global warming. But I don't think that either research group is suggesting that this um, is actually changing the global temperatures. It's a surface temperature, and it's just you know mm. a mixing effect. Right. There's going to be less mixing between the layers, so it will feel warmer or cooler on the surface that than it would have without the wind farms. Um, so, I mean, I don't think it, 
I'm no climate <laughs> climate scientist, but I mean, no energy is being created or destroyed from putting wind turbines on the ground. Um, you know, you're still you're converting energy from one form to another. My intuition would be that your total temperature balance is not going to be affected if you look at the entire globe, the entire atmosphere. But, you know, like I said, I'm not, I'm not an atmospheric scientist. Um, so, so yeah, let's, let's see. Um, you know, in contrast to carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, which trap heat inside that would have otherwise left, I can't see how how this can cause anything like that to happen. It's merely that, um, yeah, cooler air at a higher altitude would have mixed more with the lower air, so it feels warmer on the on the surface. That's that's right. my interpretation of the research. All it's saying. The one that says that the um, that the warming that there's going to be half a degree of warming. It's a computer simulation, you know, using some you right. know, established um, established science. But I don't know if this was me. If I had the question in my mind, if I was a researcher with a budget and I had um, a question in my mind, oh, you know, do wind turbines affect the local temperatures? I would go out to a, a real wind farm with some, you know, historical temperature data and see, measure, has has it changed? You know, you can use a reference point outside of the wind farm and then um, measure inside the wind farm and see if something has changed. And then I would choose that wind farm for my model so that then you get a validation at least of, um, you know, how it works because it's just such a complex phenomenon, all this, um, yeah, mixing and um, climate models on a small scale are very difficult. It's a very difficult problem. Um, I just think that the first step, the like measuring and statistical analysis of you know historical temperature data and 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 recent since the wind farm, seems like a much faster, cheaper way to answer the question. And I haven't seen anybody that's done that study, and I, I don't know why. There might be a really good reason um, why they think that that's not a good method to pursue. But as someone outside of the field, that's that's my big question. Why not? Why not measure and see what happens? Yeah, but so you, you're applying engineering logic to a scientific problem. <laughs> that's that's what just happened there. Well, why don't you just go out and measure it? It's not particularly hard if you just put a thermometer out there for a summer. You'd be able to tell you what the temperature is two meters from the ground, and you have before and after measurements. You can measure in the middle of a wind farm and then a couple of miles away. You could probably get roughly in the ballpark. You could probably, a half a degree Celsius is something you could probably measure. Mm. And that, that gets to my sort of my, my point of these two articles, because there's a second article here. The University of Delaware just finished another study on the, about the East Coast uh, ocean temperatures because they're planning to put a bunch of wind turbines offshore, of course. And what Delaware is saying is that the, there is essentially no change in surface temperatures that they're talking about maybe like 0.05 degrees Celsius difference. It may be slightly cooler because offshore wind turbines are much taller, so they're not that close to the ground, so they won't affect, or not close to the ocean, so they won't affect temperatures at the surface. So the fish and the dolphins and the whales that are floating through the ocean won't feel anything different because the wind turbines are standing several hundred feet in the air versus, because they're 10 megawatt machines and up, but in, in, on the ground and onshore, we're at sort of two, three megawatts, which tend to be a lot closer. So I, it sounds like the only difference between these two studies is the size of the wind turbine. Like the taller you go, the less impact you have on the surface. But in any sort of scientific research like this, isn't your first response, Rosemary, is eh, it's probably not true? 
It, yeah, <laughs> like you I, just I can't, can't put any I weight think in that's it. Every that's I mean that's a definition of, of of science practically. I think that that would be the researchers, um, you know, initial instinct as well. Oh, you know, um, is is this true? What can I do to? Well, how can I improve this model and try and dis- disprove it? That's like the scientific method. I think the the point here is every time we see one of these articles float about about temperatures mm-hmm. at the surface and something that's really exact. I, we all have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt and say it's probably not true and there's a lot more information we need to go get before we can confirm it. So it's just a piece of information. And more to your point, since we've seen these numbers like a half a degree Celsius is a lot for like crops that can make a big difference in crops. If a half a degree Celsius was real, we'd probably be seeing that impact already, engineer versus we're going to have some sort of cataclysmic problem in the farmlands, scientists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those, are, those are kind of the two. And I always take, I always, when I read these and we get all kinds of them sent to us, it's, I always say they're not true. They may be directionally true, partially true, but it's too early to tell. We're sort of in the fog of war of all this and it's hard to say. So whether a wind turbine heats up the planet or cools the planet, don't really know yet. And and more to Rosemary's point, we haven't really measured it actually. So maybe we should do some measurements first before we get all wound up about it. But I do think that it's not it's not fair to um, say that there's a scientist that are saying, you know, there's going to be this cataclysmic um, consequence of this. If you when you read the actual papers, they're they're always nuanced and have all the caveats in there. It's the journalists sure. or maybe it's the press office from the university mm-hmm. um, or the journalists or both um, that are making right. these outrageous extrapolations. I just I got sent one today, another one about vertical axis wind turbine um, wake mix um and yes, you know all these articles one. and press releases i cannot for the life of me find the actual research that, that they are referencing how can you release a press release on an effect and then not link to the paper that that said that um Amen. because you've got no idea what their assumptions are no idea if it's just total junk science or if there's um they've actually done something new and worthwhile drives me nuts it gets reported you know everyone reports it because it's a sensational headline i mean this particular one i read it was like you know you can get five or more times the energy density from a vertical axis wind farm than a horizontal axis one that's a sensational headline everyone reports it um i bet that they haven't read the paper either because it's so damn hard to find i've emailed to try and get it but um yeah i don't think that the problem lies with the research uh, I've never actually looked at a published paper and thought, oh, you know, that's ridiculous. The claims that they're making, they they always, I mean, that's, you know, how academia works. It's so, so mm-hmm. careful and nuanced and you put every single assumption in there and, you know, it's it's all there. Um, sure. But, yeah, it gets reported like it's something that it's not. And I, yeah, I would be very surprised if that <laughs> very often had anything to do with the scientists that did the research. Well, that's why you went through eight years of education is so you could sort of figure out what's the wheat and what's the chaff. Yeah. <laughs> right? I believe that's one nine. of the things that happens at engineering school. Oh, no, sorry, nine. <laughs> so nine. you're double, but, you're but double mine. Okay. So, some of that was uh, arts degree, philosophy degree. So, um, although, I mean, that's probably the main thing that you learn in a philosophy degree is testing logic and um, that, that sort of thing. So it's right. not definitely not irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. No. But that, that, that's where engineers are always cynical because we learn to be cynical and, and learn to get the facts and, 
Exactly. Mm. Like you said, the vertical axis wind turbine news, I saw the same news. I thought the same thing. I tried to find the same information, couldn't find it. And I thought, well, it's just another reported quote unquote fact that is not based in anything. And maybe you'll get the report, Rosemary. And when you do, I would love to talk about that to see what is reality and what is interpretive, right? Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. The Biden administration has announced a series of goals for offshore wind. Now, they're calling it the floating offshore wind shot, and that's a trademark term (laughs) to lower offshore wind costs by 70% by 2035 to $45 a megawatt hour. Now, as part of this uh, effort, and the end goal, I guess the end goal is to get 15 gigawatts of floating wind um, out in the ocean by 2035. Seems like a pretty good goal. Now, that's coupled with some money that they're distributing to a variety of different places. The total sum of money is $50 million. And that $50 million in spending is going to be spread across seven different programs. Uh, there's about $6.8 million going to optimizing Floating platform technologies, $3 million to develop modeling tools for floating wind arrays, a million dollars for a West Coast ports analysis, some undefined funds are going to a West Coast transmission analysis, $30 million is going to a program called Atlantis 2, which is devoted to floating wind, and then a million and a half-ish is going to environmental research, environmental research for bats off the West Coast of California. And then $3.5 million is funding is headed to the National Offshore Wind R&D Consortium to look at marine life and fish life and how they're going to interact with wind turbines. So, Rosemary, that's a lot of different programs for $50 million. It seems like it's spread pretty thin. They're really trying to drive offshore wind prices down because currently the PPA prices are about $80 to $100 per megawatt hour. I think the spot market price is going to be about $150 a megawatt hour. So they're trying to take $150 a megawatt hour and drive it down to 45. 70% reduction in anything is massive. Is $50 million even a realistic amount to to drop it 10%? 15%? It seems like so little to <laughs> to make an impact there. I think we'll have trouble teasing out what the impact of this was, but I won't be at all surprised to see drops of 70% because floating offshore wind is is very new now. There's only you know a couple of operational wind farms, floating offshore wind farms um, today and a couple more in development. So uh, it's definitely going to drop that much over the next, what is it, 13 years. I mean, it'll drop more than that, yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure. If you look at any any of the curves for any other renewable um, technology or yeah, energy storage, 
the drops are much bigger than that. So I don't think the problem is their um, their goal. It's one of those, it's a great political goal because something's going to happen anyway and you can be like, yeah, we did that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's good good in that sense. Um, but, yeah, how is the, the money being spent? It's it's interesting because floating offshore, there's there's a ton of startup companies, floating offshore companies, and the very vast majority that I know of, I, I can't think of any, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there's one or two, but I can't think of any established companies, um, you know, like startups that have been in the space for years already um, from the US. They're all Europe or um, there's a Middle yes. Eastern one that I know as well. Yeah, so it's an interesting kind of turning of the tables where you've got the US government that's funding this technology and Europe is the one that's like capitalism, you know, take care of it. So <laughs> that's a bit a bit different to how you might, you know, normally ex- expect things to go. Um, that's a different I, I viewpoint for sure, yes. Yeah, but I think, I mean, any new technology, uh, floating offshore, I think it's definitely something with, with potential and I think that we are going to need it to get, um, you know, the expansion in wind um, generation capacity that we need. Um, and it definitely there's um, a lot of potential, especially in the US where your onshore wind is really um, kind of concentrated in one spot with one weather system. You know, it's not a very diverse resource. And so offshore wind is going to be a lot more valuable um, in terms of, you know, it's generating at times when there aren't a lot of other renewables in the system. Um, and then floating offshore can can help even more with that. So I think it will be okay that the price may never, probably will never get cheaper than onshore wind. But I think that that will be okay because, um, you know, it'll be so much more valuable to be, you know, providing energy at a time when solar and onshore wind isn't available. So I think right. that, you know, the government coming in in the early days and supporting projects can really help to bring costs down fast. Because, I mean, the cost of a technology, it's usually related to, you know, the volume of it. Every time you double the the volume of a product made, you get, you know, a, a fixed um, decrease in the cost. And in the early days, it's not that many more units that you need to double. You know, if you've only got, you know, three... Um, <laughs> three floating offshore wind farms in the world, you only need another three to double it, you know, but in 10 years time, um, you're going to, you know, need hundreds or, you know, maybe thousands. So makes sense to get in at this early stage. That's the time when government could, could affect things and, you know, get the price point down to the, to a level where it is commercially interesting or at least nearly commercially interesting and then once you get to that point, that's when it really rapidly starts to take off and, you know, the government can't and shouldn't do anything at that point when you've got a commercially viable product. So, yeah, I think it makes sense. Most of the money, $31 million is for Atlantis too. And uh, <laughs> this is the most American thing ever. When I lived in, in the U.S. for a year, <laughs> I did a year of my degree at um, UC Davis. Um <laughs> I had to I had to learn to speak in acronyms, you know, to figure out what what you guys are talking about. Americans love acronyms. That's what I learned. And Atlantis too is is an acronym. It's aerodynamic turbines, lighter and afloat with nautical technologies and integrated server control. It's like really natural name for, for a program, isn't it? That's so funny. So American. So just just wanted to point that out. Well, it- 
No, I think you're hit on part of it, right? The, the name is a little outrageous. And and they're, they're trademarking terms like wind shot and earth shot. That's the other one. I'm like, okay. It's, they're really? like Tesla wannabes um, or, yeah, Elon Musk yeah. wannabes. Is, yeah. is that that what it is? It's it's a bit sad. How much how much of this is going to be just people sitting down and Google searching what's happening in Denmark or Germany or Spain? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Really, because I think that's where the technology is. Are you going to just reinvent the wheel in America on some of these things? Maybe, but it's going to take a lot more than $50 million to, to make a, a sizable dent. And uh, Rosemary, you're also, I think you're right about the, the price of the energy coming down over time because it will naturally. But I'm not sure offshore wind, fixed bottom wind, has really dropped that much. I, I think it's still, uh, it's more than onshore wind is per megawatt hour by 30% is numbers that stick in my head. That number hasn't dropped well, maybe we'll- nearly as fast as I thought it would. Yeah. Yeah. And it hasn't dropped as much as I thought that it had. And we're getting to scale there, which makes me wonder if we're going to be able to do the same thing in offshore wind. Can we, well, can we, are we going to kind of flatten out because of the difficulty and it's in the ocean and just things are harder? It just, there's a limit to how much you're going to be able to bring down the cost of installing a turbine, maintaining the turbines connecting them up with the cables, all of that. There may be a bottom limit there. Yeah, definitely. And I'll be very surprised if we end up with any kind of offshore that's consistently cheaper than onshore. And, I mean, the latest um, Lazard Levelized cost of energy has offshore wind at around double um, the cost of energy for onshore. So that was their, mm. you know, their average probably using, you know, 2020 data or 2019, I'm not sure. Right. Um, and things are moving pretty quick, so I think that that will probably be changing. But the most interesting result that I saw for the cost of offshore was an auction that the UK had recently. Um, it was, you know, not constrained to any one type of generation, but offshore wind actually came in cheaper than onshore wind. Um, it, it was the cheapest of anything, I think, in in this auction that they had. So um, certainly maybe it's not moving consistently across the board and it really matters where as well because, I mean, you'll start to reduce costs when you're putting in the second, third, fourth, fifth wind farm in an area because, you know, you've learnt all of the the challenges of the subsea cables and, you know, a lot of other stuff like that. Right. But if we're still got, you know, the US is putting in its first offshore wind farms and, you know, Australia is still thinking about putting in our first, like you're not going to see those big reductions for the first project that a country is doing or a region is doing even. So um, I, I think it's hard to say what's happening, definitively say what's happening to the cost of offshore, but I get the sense that it is coming down quite fast, but just not quite at the point where you can have the, you know, there's so much onshore wind that you get really good um, solid numbers about how much it costs. Um, And we don't have that much yet for offshore. Well, if you're going to be putting wind turbines off the coast of California, which are have to be floating, you're going to buy a Vestas wind turbine. You're going to buy a Siemens Gamesa wind turbine. And and at that point, it's probably going to be French based GE Vernova is going to be where you're going to be buying a wind turbine. There, there won't be any low cost options in the United States, so to speak. So you're, you're still relying upon the manufacturing and the engineering skill well, in if you, most of Europe to come up with the savings. You look at most of the, pro- the 
the parts of this 50 million, um, a, a lot of it is on locally specific things. So they're, um, well, they're looking at the floating platforms. I don't, I think that that is most of the sure. wind farms you see out there are using an existing offshore wind turbine and putting it on a floating platform that's been probably minimally adapted from what, they, what they're using in offshore um, oil and gas. Um, but then they're also sure. looking at, you know, there's ports analysis, transmission analysis, um, research for bats. I mean, those are all small uh, mammals and fish. They're, they're all small things. I guess the biggest chunk is this Atlantis program, which um, I haven't seen too many details about, but there's so many words in the title, I guess. It it hopefully describes it, aerodynamic <laughs> turbines. I mean, is there a turbine that's not aerodynamic? That's clearly there for the sake of the acronym. Um, lighter and afloat. <laughs> lighter is the only, I guess, new, new bit of uh, information there. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. We actually, we should we should dig into that program and do a segment on that another time because I'd be interested to see oh, sure. what exactly they're okay. they're planning to do there. Um, but I think that yeah, for sure. I mean, California is a huge huge market wanting renewable energy right there. So I think it makes sense to to try and see how can we get. California floating offshore wind working, you don't necessarily have to, you know, design your own wind turbine. Um, but, yeah, you know, just get the conditions right to roll it out as fast as possible, even using someone else's technology. You, that in itself will, you know, help drive down prices because, um, you know, once you've once you've figured out the first projects, then that's a lot of logistical um, and technical challenges that you don't have to solve again and you can roll out gigawatts, uh, you right. know, just in that one small space. So, yeah, I think it makes sense. Very true. Let me ask you, I'll ask you a question about bats and see if you know the answer because I, <laughs> I, I went down this little research hole about bats because there's been studies off the east coast of the United States of how far bats will travel off land. Mm. Can you take a rough guess? I'll, get, I'll put it in kilometers, so I'll put it in Australian for you. Take, just take a wild stab at how far bats have been detected from land masses. Well, it's obviously going to be more than I'm expecting. If 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 I wasn't primed to, you know, exaggerate my my instinct, then I would have said a few hundred meters. Because as far as I know, like Australian bats eat fruit and they eat insects. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know any bats yes. that ate um, ate fish or anything, so I can't see why they would want to go kilometers offshore. But that's that's what you're going to tell me. It's kilometers, right? <laughs> 126 kilometers is what? what I read. What are they doing out there? What are they? What that's, kind of bats? I don't know. Oh, the bats that eat fish? I don't. I, I, now I I can find out. I can find out because there was a study done by the Department of Ed, Department of Energy a couple of years ago, like 2014, 2015, looking towards offshore wind off the coast of New York and Massachusetts and whatnot. So they had done a study and they they put sensors on boats as they travel along and they had the little radar ultrasound detecting unit so they knew when a bat was around. They detected bats 126 kilometers offshore. And I thought, that cannot be. That's a long way. Isn't that roughly like 80 miles from civilization? I, the bats are the most inefficient flying creatures that have to inhabit the earth besides like ostriches. They're like they're the close to that level of flight. To, to go that far, it sounds crazy, unless they're unless they're hanging around boats and on, on the on the shipping lanes. They're hopping ship to ship and is eating whatever's around. But are there, are there mosquitoes a hundred kilometers offshore? God, I'd hope not. 
No, that's weird. It, it just it, seems it did, weird. I'm glad that you brought that up because it did, when I read that out, that there's $1.6 million for environmental research for bats off the West Coast. I thought, I don't know if you need $1.6 million to answer that question because surely <laughs> there's not going to be bats flying around these offshore wind farms. But, um, uh, yeah, so apparently there are. There are. I yep. guess once, once you plant something physical in the ocean, uh, some brave bat will make their way out there and must tell all his bat friends that there's a nice place <laughs> in the ocean to hang out because it seems to be a problem. So it's, weird. It's the bizarrest thing. So uh, we'll have to bring it up in a subsequent episode. I'll find that research and bring it back out because I had no clue. I said, there's no chance. What are we even doing this research for? Because there's no chance of bats out that far. Absolutely. They're flying all over the place. So. Mm. More interesting bat news. Dateline Banner County, Nebraska. Banner County is in the western panhandle of Nebraska. Uh, the grassy plains of Wyoming and the, the mountains of Colorado are just immediately to the west. And Banner County is a wheat and cattle country with a total population of 645 proud residents. Banner County is also one of the prime spots for wind in America. Shocker. Wind companies have been courting farmers in the county for more than 15 years. In fact, energy companies have already leased 150,000 acres of prime wind real estate. And, and Envergy has already poured several concrete pads for turbines there. Except no wind turbines are in Banner County. Because Banner County is also the home to another large industry the U.S. Air Force. So back in the 1960s, during the Cold War, nuclear missile silos were placed in western Nebraska and Wyoming, Colorado. These silos are still active and are controlled 24-7 by Air Force crews. So wind turbines can pose a significant flight safety hazard, according to the Air Force. Uh, so when the wind turbines were, when, sorry, when silos were installed back in the 60s, wind turbines weren't a thing in Nebraska. And now that there's going to be a lot of wind activity in the area, the Air Force is requiring 2.3 miles or two, two nautical miles of separation between a missile silo and a wind turbine. So pretty much every planned wind turbine site is within, within 2.3 miles of a, of a missile silo. So therefore, there are no wind turbines. So why 2.3 miles? So the military helicopters don't crash during a winter storm and they run some simulations. In, in western Nebraska, when it snows, it snows. So if the ground's covered with snow and you're flying through snow, it's pretty much a whiteout. And for some reason, we paint all the wind turbines white so it makes them invisibly just go invisible <laughs> during a snowstorm. And because those missile silos are operated 24-7 and they need, if they had an emergency and they needed to get people into the silos or something and they're flying helicopters to these areas they're afraid they would have an accident so nebraska continues to lag behind all of its neighbors colorado kansas and iowa on wind turbines and uh, iowa you know more than 50 percent of the energy in iowa is generated by by wind uh so the wind turbines that could be installed in banner county they'll tell you how much of an impact this is if they could install those wind turbines in Banner County, it would increase Nebraska's wind output by 25%. That's a lot. So there is essentially no wind turbines in Nebraska, very few places. And Rosemary and Joel, one of the interesting things about this news article just was really focused on nuclear missile silos in the Air Force and why there's no wind turbines there. They also mentioned that production tax credits uh, – 
didn't apply to public entities. In Nebraska, the energy companies are co-ops. They're publicly owned. And the point of a co-op in Nebraska is to have the lowest energy prices as you can. So the energy prices in Nebraska are much lower than they are in, say, Massachusetts. But also, they weren't available. They weren't able to go out and get production tax credits. So they don't. They didn't put wind turbines out there because it didn't make financial sense. All the energy companies were cooperative, basically a quasi-public entity that couldn't apply for production tax credits. So when you drive across Nebraska, you can look to your left if you're going east to west, look to your south, and you can see wind turbines on the other side. You can't see them in Nebraska. So this great wind resource is essentially free of wind turbines. Going to Iowa, wind turbines all over the place. Going to Kansas, wind turbines literally all over the place. You, you cross into Wyoming and Colorado, there's, there's wind turbines right on the border. So this is one of the frustrating things about wind energy in America that when a national um, body like the Air Force puts limitations in, it really constrains what the states can do dramatically. Now, I understand the need for missile silos. I understand the need to get Air Force people in and out of there on helicopters when they need to be. All that's cool with me. But there's got to be a middle ground somewhere. It seems like in today's world, Rosemary, don't we know where wind turbines are located? They're not moving objects, right? And it's in today's flight world, you know where obstacles are. All the wind turbines are put into a database. We know where they are. Do we need two miles of separation? Is that really a thing? Yeah, I guess, I mean, it's not probably anything to do with the wind turbines because wind turbines, I mean, if there's a really bad storm with really strong winds, then they would probably be shut down anyway. And you certainly could set a, you know, yes. a threshold or some sort of, you know, um, alert that, that shut all the turbines down. Um, so I guess the issue is that these helicopters can't pinpoint where they're going to land See within 2.3 miles. It seems... Um, it seems a lot, but I'm not a helicopter pilot. So, um, yeah, I guess the only solution would be around the military agreeing to reduce that that limit. Um, yeah. I Could you paint the wind turbines red, orange, something? Could you put the flashing red lights on top so we knew they were there. It seems like those yeah. obvious things that could be done to alleviate this. I mean, I'm guessing, I mean, it's a really extreme. They're thinking of worst case scenario that they're trying to land a helicopter and then a gust of wind just blows them, you know, somewhere they didn't intend to go. And then, I mean, it isn't going to matter if you've got a light or a yellow wind turbine because you, you, you're not in control of where the helicopter's going anyway. But, um, right. yeah, it's it seems unnecessarily cautious to me but what do i know i'm not a not a military helicopter pilot so um yeah uh, i don't want to don't want to dis discredit their, their skills or anything uh I, you know i can't fly a helicopter at all let alone land it in a storm like that so <laughs> you know i've never been in a helicopter well, Joel, actually this... <laughs> i'm uh never well, in my life yeah, i'm waiting for electric electric helicopters so i can go heli skiing in alaska <laughs> No and no. <laughs> As is the airplane representative, airplane engineer representative on this podcast, no. <laughs> no, it's never going to happen. Well, I just can't justify, um, you know, my boyfriend spent a season heli skiing in Alaska and I'm super jealous, but um, <laughs> but I, it's just, I, I'm not one to shame people about their, you know, carbon emissions and I do plenty of things that are, you know, climate hypocritical, but 
just you know going up in a helicopter every day just to ski down a mountain seems particularly frivolous way to release emissions into the atmosphere so i uh yeah i i'm holding out for that electric helicopter i just can't believe that you're you're telling me telling me i'm wasting my time i mean they, they exist right no, there's plenty I, of I, test flights of um almost yeah. yeah so i mean if i get rich enough then maybe it won't be cost effective but i could still do it right <laughs> i just need just need a need to become a You're billionaire need bezos level of money yeah. bezos or oprah level of, of money to to really get around those things. maybe one of opinion. the in um, fact we Maybe one of these um, these electric helicopter companies wants to sponsor Engineering with Rosie video, where they let me go heli skiing in one of their in one of their electric <laughs> helicopters. Get get in touch. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm all for it, but I, I'm just yeah, this is not my top ten things to go do. <laughs> Having been on a lot of airplanes in my lifetime, Joel. Hey, I, I want to talk to you about uh, sort of the 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 lack of wind in certain places, wind energy in certain places. And it seems to be state by state. And it does seem like Nebraska has been left out of the wind energy growth spurt that happened over the last 10-ish years. Why is the federal government, if they're pushing so hard for offshore wind, looking for the easy winds? (laughs) Where like there's a lot of wind and it's just not being accessed or, or they're just not taking the barriers down. Something that uh, if the president told the Air Force, hey, it's not going to be two kilometers or, or two nautical miles, it's going to be one nautical mile. Okay, can you make it work, guys? The answer yeah. is probably yes, sir, sure, we can make that work. And then both sides win. Yeah, I think that if you look at the way some of some maps read, so I, I, I'm a, a mapper by trade a long time ago. So I really interested them. And the other day I was looking at one of cell phone coverage in the United States. And I believe it was actually Nebraska that has like a, a big 5G hole in like the whole state. So it's mm-hmm. just these political games. We talk about this regularly. Political games play such a role in, in how things get developed that sometimes it doesn't seem to make sense. I saw another one today that uh, um, the federal government was having oversight on some BLM land and the local people on the BLM land were like, no, stop, please. We would like this development to go forward or it was close to BLM mm-hmm. land. We would like this development to go forward. Can you listen to the locals? This is what we want. We want this income. We want this tax revenue. We want these things. And the federal government said like, yeah, well, this is the way it's going to go. So too bad. Um, you know, and, and to me, that's just, you know, governmental overreach when, you know, the way that U S is set up, the States are supposed to have a little bit more say in what goes on within the States than in the federal feds kind of step in. So you would think that there's with all these things, we're looking at the IRA bill and some of these other ideas of offshore wind and all these other things to, to push things forward. There's some boundaries and some barriers to entry for these markets that could be taken down a lot easier. I know earlier Mm -hmm. in the conversation about Nebraska, we were talking about. PTC funds don't apply to a co-op. Well, my, and I'm, of course, there's people that are smarter than me, tax-wise, legal-wise, and whatever, but my suggestion to those co-ops would be start a private entity and then sign a public-private entity partnership with that private entity and then have them yeah. take the, have them do the wind development. Now, I would think that someone's thought of that already and there's some loophole or something, some barrier to stopping that. Otherwise, they would have done it. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a shame to see that huge resource right in the middle of the country. That's, you know, if you're in Western Nebraska, you're not far from Cheyenne. You're not far from Fort Collins, no. Denver, Denver, Colorado Springs. I mean, and that's all in the same, um, inter uh, power interconnect as well. So it would be on the same grid. It so is. all, and there's massive, I mean, drive down I-80, the whole thing's a transmission line and that's just yeah. on I-80, right? So there's a lot of areas in that, uh, corner of the country that would benefit from a big boom in in wind resource there so the farmers would love it yeah yeah of course there's thousands of dollars in checks per month yeah and the only thing like if you've driven through that part of the country that's it's it's wheat farms and cattle grazing but a lot of the cattle grazing has been Mm. moved into or cattle have been moved into um western or eastern colorado there but this, true. Yeah, there's there's nothing really there. Um, the oil and gas stops before it gets there from the Rocky Mountains, so you don't have yeah. that income. Uh, yeah, this would be a huge, huge uh, economic boost for that corner of the world, and um, hopefully we can find a way around it. You know, there's a lot of other areas like, in the in the country that are controlled by the U.S. military and the federal government that have some yes. some odd restrictions on them. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm nothing against our our armed forces. Uh, but it would be nice to see something that relax a little bit, maybe in this case. Some sort of compromise. Yeah, I'm yeah. of the opinion they can probably compromise and both sides will win on this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot's happened in aviation in the last 20 years that makes me think uh, two nautical miles is a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's a long Maybe ways. even, that is yeah, long, limit, the, limit the height of the ways. turbines. Yeah, two miles. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's the other thing too. Yeah, you could. Or shut them down. It shut them down and make them all flicker lights like crazy, so you can see them out there. I, I think those are very yeah. doable things, and hopefully, someone from the administration and is listening and takes this on because there's, there's things that the, the administration can do that are easy wins. Why not pick up the the low hanging fruit? And I think this is one of them. It'd be a smart thing to do. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually is very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. There's a lot of news about companies working together, partnerships. You see it almost every day now in the wind industry. Company A is partnering with Company B to create a synergy, and they can work together to to create more wind energy output by some new technology that they're working together on almost every day. And I think as the wind energy grows and the companies grow, there's going to naturally be a merger scenario, partnership scenario, which leads to merger scenarios on technology because it has to, everything goes that way, right? That companies get bigger, the small ones go away, they get gobbled up and there you go. Well, a a bigger player, which is Rope Partner, is now working with um, Edge Solutions. So Edge Solutions is a Scottish company, if you haven't heard of it before. And I had somebody ask me on a chat the other day about leading edge protection and these guys came up. So Edge Solutions is based in is a Scottish company and they create these thermoplastic shells. They're called Armor Edge and they have shown a really high resistance to rain erosion. In a recent study from the UK's Ori Catapult estimated that the shells could have an operational lifetime of 50 years. So 
Rosemary, have, do you, have you ever designed a wind turbine to last 50 years? It seems like a really long time for a wind turbine. Uh, maybe 15, 20 is probably your, your, your prime spot for lifetimes, right? Uh, it's always more than 20. It's 20, 20 to 30, maybe a little bit more is kind of where we've um, we've ended up. Um, but uh, that's one of the tricks that every <laughs> every startup that you see that's promising, you know, dramatically decreased levelized cost of energy, it's because they're claiming a 50-year lifetime for something that they've never even built a prototype for. So um, that's a that's a good mm. good trick to make your, your project sound very, very economically attractive. Um yeah, uh, but I mean, uh, you you could design at least most components in a wind turbine. You could easily design to last that long if you wanted to. I mean, in the case of a blade, which is what I know the best, you just need to, you know, um, add add more material, make it a bit stronger, so that the fatigue um, fatigue lifetime is going to be long enough. You know, you reduce deflections enough, right. then it will um, it will last that long. But it it costs more and. Um, if you think back 50 years, I mean, the, uh, I visited the longest operating wind turbine in the world. It's uh, in Tvin, Denmark. It's uh, something that was built in the 70s. I think it's, I think it's a megawatt. It's actually huge for for <laughs> for its time. Um, and you know, you look at that. It's this big concrete thing. I mean, it's still operating, so that's great. But um, <laughs> if you were really just interested in making a lot of renewable energy then you know who knows what the world's going to look like in 50 years time uh, today's wind turbine is going to be the you know the best use of that land it's uh you know probably not we probably have cold fusion by then won't we um solar, <laughs> yeah. solar panels in space beaming <laughs> beaming energy down to us you, you know like 50 years i mean come on um it's it, it's pretty I don't know, it's a bit arrogant as an engineer to think that the solution that you've come up with now is going to still be state-of-the-art in 50 years' time. So I think that's the main argument against um, against making it that way. Even if on paper, to accountants, it looks like a great project if you have a 50-year lifetime. So. Right, it does. So <laughs> yeah, this thanks. is a thermoplastic shell, right? So, so Joel, these are thermoplastic shells. So they're custom-molded, and they're using a... Um, a customized mix from Ineos's Styrolutions plastic. It, it's it's actually called Loran L U R A N S C. So the plastic's Loran S C, and they're, they're just hard molding these these shells that then get stuck onto the winter. So you want to describe sort of the process in which they get applied to a, a leading edge. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's the big thing in leading edge protection right now is the application. Because there's quite a few players out there, right? Like if you're if you're into operations and maintenance, or you deal with blades regularly, you know the the leading edge protection tapes. You know the leading edge protection coatings. Uh, you have more than likely heard of uh, Polytech uh, or uh, Polytech's L shells or GE's. Uh, what is GE called? There's Pro Edge or something or LM's with Pro Edge. Um, but they're hard shells that go over the, the blade. So one of the, I think is, if I my memory serves me correctly, is Edge Solutions was building theirs. It was, they're Scottish, right? So it's all about offshore right. wind. Um, yeah. And offshore wind, of course, and that sea spray and the salt spray, like they, the leading edges get, they get beat up. Just it, it, simply, they don't last as long as they do on shore, say, you know, in Oklahoma or something. Um, so the part of them was, to, if that 50 year time is to make them thicker. Now, our, our good friends at Power Curve can tell us uh, if they're too thick, you're going to end up changing the aerodynamics of the blade. 
And that's not a good thing. So what they, I believe they've done here with Edge Solutions is you have to do a little bit of actual grinding to fit the blade. So as the other solutions mm. that are hard shells have been, you know, you, you have to tell them I have a Texas 37C, 30, you know, 37 meter blade. This is the design of the, mm. and they custom make the shells for it. So if they custom make the shells for these as well, they custom make them so that they don't actually have that like step lip. If you were just to put a shell over the top of the leading oh, edge. Sure. Sure. Because that would create that bit of cavitation there and then you you know you mess up your CFD model. So they grind, you grind, you actually kind of grind and cut them in and install them. Um, so again, like any leading edge protection system, you've heard war stories. It's not necessarily leading edge protection that the problem is or the product. It's the installation, right? If you're putting yeah. tape, if you're putting tape on and you have a little bit of pitting or chipping or something in the leading edge, and it's not just 100% perfect. You can get that bit of drum skin in there when the wind hits it and all of a sudden it rips open, tears off. Uh, same yeah. thing with coatings, same thing with the Polytech shells. I've heard some story, like not, it's nothing against Polytech. Polytech makes a great product, but if they're not installed correctly, the correct adhesive, the correct humidity, the correct blade, um, prep, uh, you can come back six months later and you can see Polytech shells laying around in the field. Again, nothing against Polytech. They make a great product. Uh, but installation is the, is the tough thing. And you're starting to see some more of these people, you need to be trained by Polytech now to put these on by their mm -hmm. actual uh, company and that's a great way to move forward so uh, i like the idea of these two getting together edge solutions and rope partner because edge solutions can bring the rope partner people or, or, or however they want to do it but train them specifically because if you're going to go to an offshore wind farm and install these things now rope partner is classically to my knowledge I'm, i might be off on the business case of it but classically more in the u.s the north american market um yes so they'll they'll have a kind of an edge on installing them over here. Thinking about the way this thing was started in Scotland, if you're going to go offshore, that campaign may cost a ton. You you go out there and do 50, <laughs> yes, 50 turbines will. of this stuff. I mean, it's going to cost you millions because of vessel time and people and all this good stuff. Now, the, the idea of a 50-year operational lifetime, that means to me that I should never have to touch the leading edges of my turbines ever again. So the, the return on investment is there. It may not be for five, six, eight, ten years, but it's there for the lifetime of the wind farm. So um, I think you're going to see more and more of these solutions uh, come, these hard shell solutions uh, for LEP come, come to fruition uh, in high erosion areas. I know, you know, you, if you look down in, along the coast of Texas, uh, there's turbines within a couple hundred meters of the water. It's basically the same thing as an offshore um, site, except for... They sit there and turn in the fog all all winter and half the summer <laughs> and just get burned up, you know. So the I like what they're doing here. I think it's a great strategy of having a, a trusted. There's a lot of people that trust Rope Partners. Um, you know, they're one of the biggest blade ISPs out there in the U.S. in the North American market. Yeah, they are. Um, yeah. So getting these guys trained up uh, properly from the factory and rolling a new product out could be good. Could be good for the industry. Yeah, I think this partnership makes a ton of sense. And I've actually looked into Edge Solutions engineering a little bit, just doing research on my own, just to, to figure out what this product is, how it would be applied. So those technical details, the plastic is pretty amazing. If the numbers are even remotely close to things that I've seen, it's a really durable material. It's a question of, like you said, Joel, how easy is it to apply? Does it really need to be applied on the ground? at the blade factory or before the blades are lifted up and put onto the turbine. 
Is that your sweet spot just for consistency of the installation? Because it seems like putting it on with ropes, which rope partner I'm sure will do, requires a lot of extra training. And if you have wind turbines already out in the ocean, you really don't have a choice. You're going to need that expertise that rope partner is going to bring to that case. But where's your sweet spot here in terms of installation uh, for these these edge protection devices? The sweet spot is, as a developer, putting them on in the factory. That's that's what okay. I would say, right? It's it's if you're going to put the, you know, okay, so this is the Armor Edge. I think the GE LM Solutions Pro Edge. If I was ordering a GE wind turbine today, I'd say put the Pro Edge on before it gets on the truck. Because then it's mm. quality controlled in the factory. There's no, the blades have never been flown. They've never been, they've never ca caught a bit of wind. The edges should be perfect. You should be able to glue them in a controlled or, you know, epoxy resin glue, however, fasten them, install right. them properly. Right. Uh, that's what I would do. Now, of course, that comes hand in hand with an ROI study and some extra CapEx uh, at the beginning stages. <laughs> but but if you can take a look at that in the long run and reduce your O&M costs, installation when we're going to you know as the u.s is throwing money after you know dollars after dollars to hit our targets um i would i thought if it was me i would love to see know my blades are going up with an erosion a hardcore erosion protection system on them rosemary as we talked about earlier in this episode a lot of the interesting technology are, is developed in europe and america is just way behind even in in something like this which is leading edge protection america has made airplanes for hundred years, but in this particular, which have leaning edges, right? And we know a lot about leaning edges, but it, it does seem like the United States is throwing money at different projects, R&D projects, but all of the cool tech is happening <laughs> across the ocean. Is this another example of that? Well, I think that this is just um, a consequence of the fact that most of the well, traditional big wind turbine manufacturers are are European. Um, and I mean, even GE, the, the blade part of it is, um, you know, is LM Wind Power, which is a Danish company. And so uh, aeroplane wing and a wind turbine blade aren't exactly the same. And I think that the uh, wind turbine has the more challenging leading edge erosion conditions. Um, and it also it varies from location to location. I mean, Scotland, even onshore, I know that they just have... <laughs> something about the rain in in scotland just erodes leading edges wind turbine leading edges like butter um so you know there's probably more incentive to, to come up with solutions there um yeah so i, I think that, that that's that's the reason I, I think i don't know the u.s innovation kind of i don't know ecosystem is set up to solve problems like this but if you don't have the companies that have the problem then how would you have come up with a solution i, I think it's as simple as that I think it rolls back to what we talked about last week with the, uh, you know, when we looked at the curve of once PTC funds uh, run out, the, the effort isn't there to keep these things running as, as smoothly yeah. as they should. Yeah. So we need to talk about yeah. that in depth later on because I, right. I found that, um, yeah, one of the annual reports recently just showed the uh, availability of wind farms in the US. And after 10 years, it really drops off a cliff. It's uh, it, it's too abrupt to be a technical. <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah, like a, a engineering maintenance kind of thing. It's it's got to have some sort of human cause a, a drop like that. So we've got to we've got to talk about that sometime in depth. So Rosemary's Rosemary's talking about a, a wind turbine field of dreams. If you build it, they will mm -hmm. come. 
<laughs> and all the all the support companies will come once we start building wind turbines in America. I think all the support industries will start to develop relatively quickly, like they have in Europe. I, that's a really good example, Rosemary, and I, I agree with that analysis. Hard hard to be a follower though, you know. Once um, there's already so many companies with the the expertise somewhere else and the the cheap <laughs> cheap solutions, mm-hmm. they've you know they've already paid back their uh, their research budget. So. Yeah, definitely something to be said yeah. for for getting in on the next industry. So that floating offshore um, money is maybe that's the right the right industry to be trying to you know develop those sort of supporting industries because that's not established yet anywhere. Right, you you do raise a good point. I I agree with you. That's open landscape right now. And if if the United States wanted to get after that market, much like China has, China went after that hard about two years ago, and they are really far ahead of everybody uh, in terms of deployments, technology, growth in that industry. But they did the same thing. If you build it, they will come. Basically, they put cash out there and said, hey, uh, we're going to pay you a, a tremendous amount of money to, cre- to create power with floating and offshore wind, fixed, fixed bottom wind, and just let the industries go. Now, there's a, a more of a governmental intervention <laughs> than there is in America uh, but the, if the incentives are there, like much like with PTC, uh, the American companies will, and international companies will step up and, and fill in that void. That's what we've seen. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. We'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.